welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. As promised, this is round two in our group of four podcasts we're going to hopefully release one week at a time. And I am still out here smoking this ham. You think, man, it's been a week. How long does it take? No. If you uh, listen to the last podcast, you understand doing um, these bumpers all in one group. So I'm just going to quickly tee this up. So we're having Rob Dowdle back on. Rob's been on before, and Rob's been a longtime supporter of the podcast and he's going to talk about within two years, in his previous episode, it's been two years and where he's been with Mangalitsas and uh, some of the issues he ran into and some of the hard decisions he had to make in moving away from that for production purposes. So we'll just jump right in and let Rob tell his tale. Today, we are doing a revisit. We are going back down to the mighty Mississippi. And we're going to spend some time with Rob Dowdle of Dowdle Family Farms. Welcome, Rob. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me back, Troy. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I know you actually had to leave the farm and go into the office and do all that type of stuff to talk to me. Your sound sounds really good, though, so I appreciate you putting forth that effort. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I Thank you for what you're doing with the Pastor Pig podcast, the website, Facebook group. It's It means a lot to a lot of different people. Uh, me especially, but thank you for all the work y'all have invested in this. Uh, we appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, and, and I'd like to do more and, and just try to find the time to manage it. But, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love doing it and I love talking with everybody, and, and your feedback is, is very, very helpful. All right, so if you guys are wondering why well, I mentioned uh, that we were coming back around, so we had Rob on the podcast before, and I do want to mention as well that Rob is a longtime Patreon supporter, so Rob, thank you very much for your commitment there to help keep this going. That means a lot to me as well, and uh, you know, there's not too many millionaire pastured pig farmers, so every dollar is is uh, is appreciated and... and uh, Thank you. I'm oh, happy to help. I enjoy listening. It's worth just having something to listen to uh, <laughs> while I'm out on the farm right. doing meaningless tractor work or yeah. uh, to keep me from cussing pigs too much. <laughs> I, I hear you. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep keep reminding yourself. Why do I do this? Why do I do this? That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Oh goodness, I got a story I could get into, but I'll save it for later. But yeah, makes me want to quit pigs altogether. But um. Okay, so back in episode 76, which which uh, we aired in December of 2021, I think we actually recorded that back in September, but uh, we aired it back in December, so if you want to go back and listen to that, you can uh, get the original introduction to Rob. So we're not going to plow that same ground. What, the reason why Rob's on here, and, and uh, he and I were talking, and and he volunteered to do this, and I appreciate his willingness to be transparent, and his um, his his willingness to share uh, what I would call a swing and a miss. You know, a willingness to say, "Hey, this just didn't work out, and here's the reasons why." And this is not a an absolute prohibition for you all to stay away from, but. This is definitely a cautionary tale. So what we're going to get into, he's he's going to share his the details with it and why it didn't work for him. And and I'd just like everyone listening to just take this in consideration. We we always look in whether it's pastured pigs or it's any business, you're always looking to exploit a niche, to find a way to do something new or different or unique that nobody else is doing, but there's sometimes a reason why nobody else is doing that, um, because the challenges can be insurmountable, and the the time to develop, the time to see the things come to realization and fruition, um, it can really can really exhaust you. So what we're talking about, I know it sounds kind of cryptic, but if you've read the title, then you know what we're talking about. But it's kind of cryptic, but. Um, Rob, back when we talked back in 21, was was getting into to Mangalitsas, and he was going to use that kind of as a niche and, and develop that. So so I'm going to stop talking now and let Rob kind of pick up here. So Rob, just give us a quick summary of where we left off in 
2021, and then maybe we'll get into the meat and potatoes as to to why you came to this decision. But if you would give us a flashback, and you were just about to get your breeding trio, so so pick up there if you don't mind. Yes. Yeah, so when we talked the last time, we had uh, I'd been dealing with pasture pigs, raised meat pigs. I'd had some American Guinea hogs that I really enjoyed their meat. Those were the first pigs that we had. And then I bought some meat breed pigs. They range from Chester Whites, Deerox, Hamps, uh, Old Spots, you know, uh, a variety of different ones from a breeder who actually raises them for uh, show pigs. Um, those were as cast offs. They didn't have the right coloring or whatever for show pigs. And so I brought them to the farm. What I ran into at the time, though, was that I could not get piglets He's breeding for the Dixie National, which is in February. So he's breeding his pigs uh, for July, August births, you know, weaning them in October, November, September, October, November, this time of the year now. And which is a great, which is fine, but I could not get pigs in the spring, which is when I really wanted them. And um, I found this guy that had a breeding trio of mangalitas. I actually found two groups of mangalitas. One guy had a breeding trio of mangalitsas, and the other uh, had a whole herd of them that he was getting rid of. Um, I decided to go with the breeding trio um, just because I I wanted something. that One of them was a proven breeder. The boar was proven. They were gentle. His daughter had taken care of them. And I felt fairly confident that we could get things worked out pretty well in terms of, of you know piglets on the ground, piglets weaned, and that kind of thing. Um, I picked those up in uh, mid-September. I think I was about a week from picking them up when we actually talked last time. And our first piglets uh, were born in January. Um, and then some of my other, uh, a couple of Hampshire style that I have, still have her, uh, she fared by, in February of 2022. Yep. Um, so shortly after, you know, we, we had piglets from those pigs at the same time, the guy that had a group, that whole herd of pig of mangalitsas, uh, he said that where he was going to sell them, that the deal fell through as some kind of scam. He asked if I wanted them. So, no, but the short of a long story, he just, he delivered them to the farm. He was just glad to get rid of them. Mm. And, uh, that, that um, that was my downfall right there. So I had several breeding uh, age gilts, sows, and two boars. Mm. Um, and that's my first introduction to mangalitsas. I'd heard the warnings from, you know, if you look on the pastured pig, uh, pastured pigs for meat and profit, Facebook groups and many others, a lot of people warn about mangalitsas and some of the specialty uh, pork. Uh, pig breeds, excuse me, some of the specialty pig breeds. And I'd heard they had a grow, slow grow out time. I'd heard, you know, many of the downsides. My theory at the time was that, you know what, if they take longer to forage, that's not, you know, to grow out, that's not that big of a deal, especially if they're better foragers. Um, and they, they had been decent foragers, but uh, two years later, I have one mangalitsa sow left. I have six of 150, almost 200 mangas that I had born on the farm in those first six months. And uh, I'm wishing I did not have any of those mangas at the time. It was just a, a debacle all the way around for me anyway. Wait a minute. So you're, you're saying, so your breeding trio and then everything that developed from that herd, you had over 100 Mangas at one time? Yes. So so I had that breeding trio. Uh, of those, only one of the sows, I still have her, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, her name's Annie. But she's the only Mangalitsa sow that I have left anymore. Okay. Um, but her sister never did uh, pharaoh, uh, and so she never did catch. So we made sausage out of her. Uh, the boar, I eventually culled because I had a second group of mangalitsas that someone brought to the farm that I accepted. I did not pay for them. Uh, he was just trying to get out of them. And they were in those mangoes. They were not well taken care of. They had some health problems. Uh, parasites had not been dealt with. Um, and 
they were not wild, but they were not nearly as tame as uh, the trio that I, that original trio that I'd gotten. Yeah. Um, so from that though, I had some Chester white gilts that I kept close by. And for that Mangalitsa boar, even at a 10,000 volt electric fence, five thousand five different 10,000 volt electric fences will not keep them from breeding with um, more gilts, which is, you know, I don't blame him, I guess. But short of long story, he broke through um, those five electric fences and bred, oh gosh, 10 or 12 sows, <laughs> uh, gilts that I had that I'd set out from Chester Whites to Herefords to Durox, uh, one old spot. Uh, he bred those. And so that, that it, it was poor management on my part. First of all, that has nothing to do with the pigs. It's just don't keep a boar with breeding age gilts. He's going to jump through the fence every time. So now I keep them a mile separated or so from the farm and haven't had any issues. Yeah. Um, but that, him tearing through the electric fence to get to the gilts is what created those problems Wow! Yeah. with the number of pigs. Okay. So that, that's why your population dramatically increased. You had the, the gifted, <laughs> the gifted herd yes. and then the prolificness of your boar. <laughs> yes. 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 And his determination to do his job no matter what. Yeah. That's what you call a proven boar. <laughs> yes. Proven boar. Uh, and he was well proven. Um, anyway. Yeah. All right. So, so you've you've obviously unloaded um, almost all of your mangas, and um, and obviously you're not focusing on developing that specific breed anymore. So so what would you say were some of the catalysts for you coming to that decision over the last year? Uh, first and foremost, there is a long grow out time, and you know you can hear people talk about that, and it may be true. Uh, you can hear you know, I knew that several people had mentioned that, uh, on the Facebook groups, but in my naivete, I thought, well, it doesn't really matter if it takes me, um, you know, a year and a half to two years to grow out these mangalitsas because the feed cost will be reduced. It's just a little bit less. It's just a little bit more labor and they're on the farm a longer amount of time. Um, that said, they did not forage any better. And I think the other thing is even if you feed a mangalitsa, and I don't think this is enough most of the time unless you're just incredibly, incredibly good with with growing good forage crops, you know, for your pigs. Um, even if you feed the mangalitsas on average one pound of grain a day, well, after two years, that's 700-something pounds of grain. Yeah. I mean, that you know, you're still talking about an incredible amount of grain. Um, it's horrible cash flow because you've got all the cash, you know, tied up in those pigs. Um, so that's that long grow out time, I think, is the thing that really um, was one of the one of the biggest factors because of the lack of good cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's <clears throat> goodness. That's it, it's it's really interesting, Rob, how those those two things are linked. Like you say, you, you weren't, you weren't coming into this blind. You knew that the mangas were not just a, a fuzzy, cute looking pig that people like that you'd done the homework. You knew the, the grow out time was going to be longer, but that was you know, in your mind or in, in, in philosophy, it was, well, that's going to be the trade for the, the better feed conversion I'm going to get because of the, of the great forage that they're going to do. So when that didn't materialize, then that makes that grow out time, um, to be much, much more of a burden. So that just absolutely crushes cash flow, I assume, at that point. Yes, and really, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that people talk about feeding one pound of grain a day to Cooney Coonies and other breeds. I don't have any experience with those, so I don't feel competent to make that comment. But in my foraging system, I mean, we've got um, uh, 40 acres of hardwoods. We have um, now, and at the time, um, 15 to 20 acres of cover crops that we can grow for the pigs. Uh, but even then, at, well, at the time we only had about five acres, but even with five acres of, of intentionally grown cover crops for pigs to forage on, the mangalitsas were just not performing well enough with one pound of grain. And it's incredibly difficult to maintain 
high quality forages year round for pigs. I mean, I didn't have to feed. I mean, I had a hundred over a hundred feeder pigs at one time. And between the fall pumpkins that we had last year, over 40,000 pounds of pumpkins that people brought to the farm, which is only the equivalent of about two tons of feed if of dry grain feed. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But along with those pumpkins and the acorns, or excuse me, acorns is people who are not quite as southernly sophisticated <laughs> may pronounce it. This is true. Um, yep. People make fun of me on the YouTube channel all the time for how I say acorn. Yep. Um, yep. But, but. But with those, you know, yeah, we didn't have to, I mean, I barely fed them for two months and they, uh, two and a half months and they performed really, really well. But at the same time, you still have another, um, you know, 10, nine and a half, 10 months out of the year that they need decent nutrition yeah. to grow out. And it's just the cost. Uh, I, I don't think of one pound of grain per day per pig per pig even with good forage is is sufficient unless someone is extremely extremely skilled in growing uh really high quality forages for them um so that's that's yeah yeah the cash flow there i, I think you'd still be and and they don't convert they don't convert the feed to meat they convert it to fat but they don't convert it to meat as well either yeah um yeah, and, and that's the other, <clears throat> goodness, that's the other big shoe that has to drop in this situation. And and, and we'll get into that in a second, but I, I do want to talk a little bit more. So the, you bring up a very good point. And of course, you're in, you're in central Mississippi. Or are you more southern? Um, a little bit kind of northeast. Okay. Um, about three quarters of the way up. Okay. Um, the state. So you, you're, you're kind of right around there, kind of the same latitude as Atlanta, I assume, right? Yeah, 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 just about right at. Yeah, so so looking at that and, and being in a you know what we what we would consider uh, we pseudo Yankees up here would consider a a deep South where you have more temperate winters, even dealing with that uh, that climate and and having the forage and the and the mast and all those things available, uh, you still have that downtime and so the further north you come. Um, and trying to rely on forage, man, the harder it gets uh, to to be able to have year-long sustainable forage for your animals to get to. I know when, when my pigs, even the small herds that I have, once once the mass hits the ground, anything that they're access, they have access to, yeah, that's swept up in about two weeks. I mean, they're little vacuum cleaners when it comes to acorns and yes. walnuts and hickory nuts and those things. I mean, they'll they'll just spend all day grazing and and uh, within within two weeks, they've gotten all five acres just just vacuumed up. So it's great. It's great if you happen to be finishing them at that point. But um, when you're looking for that long haul, and you've got nine to ten more, you know, ten to twelve more months of, of grow out time, you're like, well, okay, you know, the acorns were a nice little substitute, but now it's time to get back to to throw and feed. And that and that one pound of feed a day ration is well. I, I've never run into that, and, and obviously I, I don't have more of the, the heritage foragers, but even with my large blacks that are pretty good foragers, I just, there's no way. I, there's no way I could go down to one pound to feed and still expect to finish um, finish a herd in any reasonable time. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a huge expense if you're giving out, I did the math real quick here, if, if I was in your situation at the, in my current feed costs, that's a, for for. 24 months of or no 20 months of one pound of feed for one pig was 150 bucks just for that one pig and yeah uh, yeah there's no there's no way i could do that um i just don't have enough forage here so I'd, I'd have to go back up to two or three so that makes that just feed alone makes that unprofitable uh for me and that's that circumstance to have something grow out that long yeah and that doesn't even start talking and that doesn't even consider the uh, meat fat ratios and everything else that you get with mangalitsas. I one little side note on that, and I, I realize this isn't the point of our discussion, but for our breed ears, uh, for our we currently have mostly birchers. I've got that one um, uh, manga and uh, Annie left, but uh, for mostly we've got birchers and hampshires uh, for our breeders now. Yeah, and over the course of this summer. I actually fed them on average less than one pound of grain 
uh, per day for a period of several weeks, and they still improved body condition. Now, they were at the beginning of their gestation cycle, so they were bred, uh, and so it, they weren't in milk or anything else. But I was able to do that with some of the cover crops. Right. But that's when, but when you're doing that for six or eight weeks, and then there's nothing else. I mean, you've got to to jump in, and of course, sound nutrition is, you know, they have the digestive tracts to handle large volumes of feed. Whereas, you know, until they're about a hundred pounds, feeders, you know, their digestive tracts are not capable of of processing that much bulk. Uh, immediately, um, you know, with, with as good a performance, you know, as the sows are, they need more concentrated feeds. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, um, no, it does. It does. And, and that's one of those things. It's kind of the, you know, the dirty little secret of pastured pigs or, or any, any scale, you know, we, we, we're regenerative agriculture, slow food, whatever you want to call it. You know, we're, we're trying to raise a product that is better in quality and more responsible when it comes to the animal welfare and even the um, um, environmental welfare. But, you know, the dirty little secret is when we scale up to the point of getting beyond a homestead level or just raising one or two or three pigs for ourselves and we want to scale that up to raise for others, then that's where the inputs... I, I, I just don't think we could ever reach a zero input. And I know you and I have talked off off uh, interview where we've talked about what Walt is doing up in... New Hampshire, yeah, and he's you know he's probably the closest with good documentation. There's probably other people out there doing it, but Walt's just got really good documentation. Um, but you know his situation is kind of a unicorn situation. He's he's got a very unique setup, and and he's developed his land um, over the years. But but we just have to look and realize that in in reality we're always going to have those inputs, no matter how much. <clears throat> excuse me, no matter how much we're going to be able to, to raise our own cover crop, unless we just have hundreds and hundreds of acres that we're able to raise, which again creates a whole nother input issue. You're just kind of pushing inputs over into diesel and, and equipment to manage all of that. But, um, but at, that's another topic because we, we do, for you guys listening, we do want to get Rob back on here because he has had good success with cover crop. Um, so we do want to get him back in and dive into that, but the, that's, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you said something there, Rob, I think it's, it's worth getting into. And I know you'd expressed this and before we started the recording that even with the, the Mangalitsas and their, their grow out time and, and all of those things, that was an issue, but there was also kind of a second leg to this stool of, of the concern you had in, in, in being specialized in Mangalitsa. And that was, your customer base kind of understanding when you're looking at holes and halves, just what the confirmation, you know, the meat profile of, uh, of a manga is. You want to expound on that a little bit? Sure. So, and understand my setting here in, in Northeast Mississippi is going to be very different from many people's settings. Um, but for the most part, people don't eat a whole lot of pork in Mississippi. Uh, they'll buy a whole and half beef. Um, they'll, Beef is pretty much king here now. Um, and so when people buy eat pork, it's usually a sausage or bacon. Uh, they're not used to purchasing whole or half animals. Um, and so it, it, it's not as common as it is in other parts of the country. So when we take a – most of the mangalitsas I processed myself. I took a, a handful of them to our processor for USDA processing. But most of them I did myself. And when you have – uh, a pig that has uh, maybe forty percent meat and sixty percent fat, people aren't aren't ready for that level of meat to fat ratio. Uh, I mean, even in sausages, that's a that's a, a lot of a whole lot of fat. And so when we sold some feeder piglets, and um, I, I told everyone, you know, this is a pig that's going to be more interested in foraging if you're going to just set them in a small pen and feed them grain you know you're you're going to lose yourself but even with those warnings um the feedback that i got from those people with those feeder pigs and it, it didn't matter whether they were mangoes or, or half mangoes uh they were just you know they they spent a lot of time a lot of money and they weren't real satisfied with their grow outs on my end when i processed and I, I mean, I've done 
dozens and dozens, not as many as many of the people on your podcast have. But, you know, when you start trying to to find meat instead of just pure fat, I mean, we'd have packages of 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 ground pork or sausage that were way, way too fatty. We just couldn't couldn't use them very well. We'd have to, uh, you know, to make spaghetti, we'd have to get 10 pounds of ground pork, cook it, drain seven pounds of grease off of it. And that's just way too much. Um, a lot of my, the intramuscular marbling, now don't get me wrong, the intramuscular marbling is outstanding. And in fact, where the, the good fat comes from is we had some pigs escaping. We'll get there in a moment if you want to. Sure. Uh, that deals with some of the manga temperament, I think. But um, so I just started culling them and I didn't have time. I mean, I scraped and scalded the first two. It took way too long mm. with my setup. So I just skinned them. But you can still take a hundred pound mangalitsa, skin them, put them on a smoker hole, and there's still so much fat intramuscular and fat cap that that they're just as good as one with the skin on you know as your standard meat pig with the skin on um still bacoodles of of fat and moisture there to cook so i mean that's one good thing about that but with the extra intramuscular marbling you have a two three four inch fat cap that and a and a pork chop that's the size of a dollar bill folded in half right <laughs> I mean, it's it's just and and don't get me wrong. I know that people say that there's a market for it, and there is. But I'm, you know, here in my area, we're having a difficult time getting people to pay, you know, the extra cost seven or eight dollars a pound for pastured pork. Period. Yeah. That doesn't match mention whether it's non-GMO, organic, conventional grain, whatever. It's just the cost is higher. The cost of processing is higher, and so getting them to pay. Uh, I don't know what it would cost a twelve dollars a pound for a small or fifteen dollars a pound for a small pork chop that has great intramuscular marbling, but way too much fat. I mean, it's just it's not very feasible for my market community. Right. Um, and so and I didn't and even though I would tell people that after the first one or two, I just I did not feel comfortable. Um, I didn't feel comfortable selling those so you know in addition to the long grow out time where we had a lot of cash flow issues i wound up having taking a lot of barbecued pork to uh church potlucks and uh i mean we threw parties it seems like every week or two where we'd barbecue a manga because we had to call them out yeah. um so yeah, and man, you there there's a lot there to unpack and I do, I do want to hit on something that that's super key uh, that you said there Rob and that is we hear all the time that there's a market for that and it could be whatever we're talking about but people always say well there's a market for that. Well yes, there is. There 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 most likely is a market for something as niche as um, you know, lard pigs and, and specific manga, specific raised out a, a way. There is a market for that. But the, the biggest thing, and this is, this is me putting on my marketing hat, you have to figure out, A, is that market even, you know, geographically is even close to me? If it is, it's going to be a much broader circle than something that's not as niche. So once you have to reach an audience that is way scattered out more than a very pinpoint audience, and let's say everyone, everyone in a neighborhood besides you, 300 houses in this nice neighborhood could be a potential customer, then that's easier to market to than to say, okay, now we have all of northeastern Mississippi we have to figure out how to reach with, with the, the stock that I have. Well, that changes the whole dynamic on business capital when it comes to marketing, when it comes to delivery, when it comes to fulfillment of orders, all of that stuff. So that starts rubbing, the cost of that starts rubbing against the cost of the grow out time, the, the poor foraging, uh, the, the, the lack of, of conversion there. And then, so, so not only you know, that expense of reaching that market, but now you have to educate that market to say, okay, yeah, if, you, if you're looking for 
Mangalitsa because you do like a lard pig? Do you, do you fully understand what that means? And that means uh, this is the type of, of conversion, especially in a half or whole, where usually we sell those at hanging weight and say, okay, your hanging weight's going to be that 70% of the, the live weight of the animal. And by the time we process everything, you know, you're looking at a much lower percentage of meat versus fat. And if people, I think it's funny, and maybe you can speak into this more, Rob, but the, the small amount of people that I run into is like, oh, yeah, we love lard. And then you actually deliver them a whole bunch of lard. They're like, oh, I don't know what to do with all this lard. I just wanted a little bit of lard. It's like, well, you know, it's a big pig. And there's, you know, when we get all yeah. the lard, you know, versus you know, leaf lard versus back fat, all that type of stuff. It's a whole other discussion. But there's an educational element of that. And, and yeah, when it comes down to cost and, and somebody, yeah, I, I get this all the time, even with, with my hogs, it's just, okay, that pig was how much hanging? Okay, it was this. And well, I don't have that much meat when I when I brought all my packets out. I you know I look up. There's no way in the world that I had you know uh, 200 or 195 pounds of meat there. Well, I was like, well, okay, we have to explain how we go from hanging weight to to um, yes. processed weight to actual packaged product that type of thing. Um, so it's hard enough of education with just you know, conventional pastured pork, and then when you get into these these lard breeds and and people don't have the knowledge or experience of what to do with all that lard, then it just becomes so much more difficult to, to get. So that's a long yeah, way. Yeah, and the, the, if you've got a total, let's say you deliver a 300-pound live-weight animal, well, on a standard meat pig, uh, they can expect, I, I know it varies widely, but 130 to 160 pounds of usable product back, roughly. Um, but the thing is, is on that 300-pound live-weight animal, uh, with your standard meat breeds, Durox, Chester, Whites, whatever, whatever breed you want to want to throw in there. Okay, they may have uh, 20, 30 pounds of fat. When they come back from the processor and that of that 100 and just to make it a round figure of that 150 pounds they come back with and 60 pounds of it is fat, that's or 75 pounds of it is fat, they're paying more for the actual meat part of the animal, even if the cost of the animal is the same. So, and, and most people, I, I know some people like, and will render lard. Uh, most of my customers, they'll use it, but they're not quite comfortable rendering it. And certainly not in such large volumes. Right. Um, it, it's just a whole different dynamic. Yeah. 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 A really good point. And, and what's funny Rob is, is, and you. I think you hit another whole side here, and this is this is for our listeners to think about when they're looking at their market or their audience and say, "Well, I do have people that like lard. They do a lot of work with lard." Well, if it's if it's individual consumption, somebody who knows how to render lard and put it away, and um, maybe gets a lot of it from you at one purchase, if they've done their preserving and canning and processing stuff well, they may not need to see you for another couple of years <laughs> because they've yeah. got enough lard put away. Uh, they've been good stewards of, of that uh, that product and been able to put it away. And so you, know, you may have that customer show up instead of once every six months or once a year, maybe it's once every two years because they've been able to put away enough lard from one pig to support their families lard needs but then you get into these larger situations and if people know how to do all of this stuff there's a chance they also have the ability to raise out one of the pigs on their own so if if they're that into um i don't call it prepping but if they're that into much uh, self-sustaining type uh when it comes to their food then they can say well you know, i've got i've got a half acre back here i'm going to going to put a pig on it myself and and take care of that myself so so understanding your market not only finding your market that consumes that 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 likes a lard pig but understanding the market to say are they going to buy that from me versus uh, buying it or doing it themselves and if they do even buy it from me how often are they going to be a repeat customer i mean those are those yeah. are key questions that well, have to be asked and and one other question let's say your average price for and i know it varies for everybody but let's say your average price for your pork if you're doing it for resale and everything else is uh let's say it's eight dollars a pound um it may be $6 a pound, it may be 10 whatever, depending on what you're doing. 
But if it's $8 a pound, are people willing to pay $8 a pound for fat? Not lard, but for fat. Exactly. And that's that's uh, my experience in that is absolutely not. So then the cost of the actual meat portions are higher. I mean, it, 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 it all escalates wildly on with what you're saying there. I mean, it's – and I'm not saying that it can't be done. It's just – most people do not think through these things very well. That's why I would recommend anyone, if they're going to try a uh, any kind of any breed of pig for that matter, I would suggest, you know, trying some feeder pigs uh, from those genetics and then seeing how things go from there. Right. Yeah. Um, especially with mangalitsis. I, you know, and, and let me say, some people do really, really well with mangoes. I don't mean to be down on it, but it, it wasn't for me. Yeah. But anyway. Well, well, let's do this. Um, this is totally off the cuff and shoot holes in this because obviously I've never raised mangoes. But um, so we're talking kind of like the hole in half market where people are getting bulk meat and the issues that come along with that, obviously, with a with a lard pig. But if we went to uh, you know, full blown USDA process where we were selling individual cuts. So we know obviously storage and maintenance and all that type of stuff is a whole nother another cost that goes along with the farmer but do you think it could possibly profitable where where you're saying okay now i've got instead of an eight pound bag of of lard back fat or leaf lard it, it now maybe is is a um i'm an eight dollar not eight pound an eight dollar bag of fat now we've got a $16 bag of fat. So you're putting that value added in it because you're allowing person, a person to come buy just one bag versus them getting all this money tied up in, in bulk. Do you think there could be some profitability there, Rob, that if, if somebody's playing the cuts game that they could possibly turn a manga to profit? I, my, this is again based on my profit, but I would say there's no way because you have so much fat compared to meat You've got to sell so much more fat than most people are comfortable doing, and we just don't have a market for it. Now, there's a market for it in candle making, um, and, and many and soap making, and many other endeavors. But I don't know many candle makers that are going to be able to sell, you know, that are going to be able to pay eight dollars a pound, even yeah. sixteen dollars a pound for fat or lard, what in whatever form that you get it. And then, you know, there's, they're just the people, the number of people that'll eat, pay more for pork. There are many fewer of those people who are going to pay more for the, the fat in my experience or the lard. And so because of that, you'd have to increase the price of the meat to offset the lower price that you right. get from the from the lard just to move it yeah. it's just like you know the breast on a chicken yeah. is what what sells <laughs> That's exactly well what I was thinking, you've got to do something nope. you've got to do something with the backs you got to do something with the legs something with the wings and yes all those things are sell yes there's a market for them but uh, it's just like the bacon in pastured pork i mean yep. the bacon is the first thing that that goes that's why our bacon is uh 50, 60% higher than anything else that we sell exactly. just because we're trying to keep people from buying so much of it. Cause I like bacon. I'm a big boy, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and so it's just, you've got to, it's, it's the proportions that I think people need to take into consideration. Now, if you find a restaurant that really values lard and very high end restaurants, uh, there's, there might be a market for it. We've got a restaurant here in Columbus uh, Columbus is about 30,000 people. We've got about 50, maybe 60,000 people in the county. And then there's Starkville, Mississippi, home of Mississippi State, uh, 25 miles away, and Tuscaloosa. So we're not like a, a real – our farm is in a rural urban type area, but we've got decent-sized markets close by with three different colleges, four-year college, you know, universities within 60-mile drive of the farm. One of them is the University of Alabama. But even then, you know, um, I lost my train of thought, Troy. No, I'm no, so sorry. No, no, you're just you're just talking about that that restaurant that even if you've got that, oh, that, yes. that restaurant that really so, likes lard. Yeah. Yes. So that that restaurant, I mean, they per she purchases honey. She strives, really, really strives to find local produce, local meats. Uh and you know, when when like 
Megan and I will go there once or twice a year. We don't go out to eat much, but when we do, we go, we often go there in part because it's an intimate environment in part because she purchases some of our products products, but also because we know that it's a higher quality of food. She sees the value of fat and, and many other specialty products, but even then in a restaurant that size, um, I don't, and I haven't processed enough of the mango litsa. We never got to the processing stage really yet, um, but I've never processed enough of it under USDA inspection um, to have enough quantity for her to use. But even if I were to try to market that, um, you know, that even in our area, I, I just, unless you can find some high-end restaurants that really value, you know, pasture-raised lard, uh, it'd be really difficult. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, that, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And and I, I agree. I, I think there's, there's just so much to that. Um, and, and, and we're talking about two different products here, actually, to some degree, we're, we're talking about fat, you know, the byproduct of the animal. Um, and then the restaurants wanted to use lard. So, you know, the fat and lard are not the same. They have to be, you know, the fat has to be rendered to turn into lard. So, yeah, the issue like we have with our USDA process, a brand new, really great facility, they don't render lard. And you, know, you can't bring that fat back. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can't bring that fat back to your farm and render it and then turn around and sell it uh, because that's, you know, most cases that's against um, uh, the food processing laws. Same so, here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things to say, OK, the restaurant, if I sell them fat, then they have to render it. And so that's another service for them to have to take into consideration. <clears throat> or you got to find a processor who does uh, USDA level lard rendering. And only then could you maybe have that value added service where you could get that, that higher price. But like you said, Rob, yeah, if, if you've got an audience that could use that, that audience is going to be at the tri-state level, not at the, not at the local community, not even at the tri-county level, unless you're right in the dead center of a huge metro area. So it's, it's definitely, it's definitely one of those yes. things that you're going to spend that money in developing those audiences. And, and I've never sold to restaurants and I know a lot of people listening have, and they've been successful with it. But the thing that scares me the most is that uh, when you look at the volume of customers buying your product, yeah, I have the ability to sell to any, you know, Dick and Jane anywhere in the, in the area that's interested in pork. So my potential customer base is very broad. Now, obviously I have to figure out how to get them to, to buy my stuff. But then when we get into specialty restaurants that want my rendered product, um, that's not a lot of eggs in that basket. And so when, when you take your, you know, one of your key products that make you successful and say, okay, there's maybe four or five customers that are keeping me profitable or keeping my head above water, and something changes because there's always going to be somebody else walking into that restaurant saying, hey, I've got a better product, a cheaper product, whatever the case may be. Or something just happens with that restaurant. I think of the people we interviewed when COVID hit that were selling to restaurants. You know, oh, my goodness, everything just stopped, came to an abrupt halt. Then yeah, that, that concerns me a little bit, especially when, as you shared with us earlier, you may be sitting on a lot of cash tied up in these pigs, and now you're your five outlets to really move a lot of their product had just disappeared or have dried up overnight, then yeah, that, that not only is a cash flow killer, but that could be a farm killer at that point. Oh yes. Oh yes. Very much so. Uh, especially if you don't have the market tied up. I mean, absolute market tied up. I mean, my pigs were born not even two years ago. The first set of manga piglets that I had that I farrowed on our farm and I have six of those remaining that have have actually had the temperament to stay in the electric fences and many other things. We can come back to that if you want. But of those six, they're just now in the 175, 200 pound range. And and they were born in January, uh, I think January 21st and, Jan you know, within three or four days of January 21st, 2021. And they still are not quite market size yet. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Just, just to give people a little bit of perspective, 18 months, 24 months, whatever, doesn't sound like, I mean, it, it sounds like a long time and it doesn't sound like a long time until you realize that we originally published, you originally published our first conversation in December. Yeah. 
uh, just before those piglets are born, and I still don't have uh, piglets for meat that I fared on our farm yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge, and that yeah, that just that just adds up so much cost and and feed, and then maintenance and headache and labor. And, and of course, like, like, like we've got this, this next point that you brought up and we'll, we'll get to that now that the unforeseen cost of an ill-tempered pig when it comes to staying where they need to. So uh, I understand you had some issues with the mangas being, uh, other than the boar busting out and, and repopulating the world. Um, what other issues did you have with the mangas staying where they needed to stay? So, let me preface this saying we do not have wild pigs in my immediate area. Now, about 20, 30 miles away across the Tennessee Tom Big B River, we, there are some scattered around, uh, around those areas. But in our area, we do not. Um, I keep our pigs in with electric fencing. Um, I'm typically, when people ha- talk about problems with electric fencing, I'm fairly skeptical. Um, but we've raised cattle with electric fencing for, gosh, since I was a kid, since, you know, for the last 35, 40 years. Um, and I've raised pigs with electric fencing for six years. Again, that's not a whole lot in, in a lot of people's experience. But when you kind of combine those, uh, we know what it means to have uh, high output joules on your fence charger. We know that it's got to be eight to 10,000 volts for it to be exceptionally effective uh we know that that testing not just with a light meter but knowing the exact number of volts that you have in a given spot i mean it's we've got a lot of experience with electric fencing is is my point here uh so we're not just setting up a cheap charger that says it'll do three you know 30 miles of fence and trusting that it's doing its job but um all that to say uh, we'd had pigs kind of jumping in between, um, some of our paddocks and I didn't think a whole lot about it initially because they were just going from one paddock to the next. And I had a little poly tape, um, my, my paddocks, if you have a, a, let's say a rectangled field, like a football field. And then I had the paddocks, you know, kind of going horizontally along the field with a short little 10 foot area where the pigs, where I'd have a gate just with with poly wire that I'd set up um, for the pigs to go through when it was time to move them. And the pigs were pushing through there. And I just thought, well, it's it's not that big of a deal. After all, um, the pigs didn't get used. You know, they knew they could get through there once. When I let them through, they just didn't know any better. So I put up a solid gate there until they got used to it, and, and it wasn't a big deal. But uh, this past January, once these these feeder pigs got larger, um, the manga and the mangalitsa crosses. Um, they would get out of the electric fence. Like when I'd go in with a tractor to load, you know, load them up or something, they'd run by me. Okay. That's the farmer's stupidity. I, I own up to that immediately, but I got the pigs in there one day and I'd had an issue with the pigs, you know, getting out. They still stayed on our farm, but they weren't in the paddocks they were supposed to be in. I was out with my family at a family dinner. I just left the pigs about three and a half hours earlier, and I got a phone call from a guy um, that had helped me process pigs before. He lives about a mile from the farm. And he said, Rob, I think we got some of your pigs here. Well, like many people, I, I get phone calls from the, the sheriff's department, from 911 dispatch, and many other times, anytime there's livestock loose, um, in our area, I often get a phone call just like many other people do. And a lot more people have pigs, um, than you might think, you know, they may only have one or two pigs or they might have a pet pot bellied pig or something like that. But when I, I, I called this guy back, he had left me a voicemail and I said, Mr. Benny, uh, I was just going to tell him that I didn't think they were my pigs. After all, they're a mile away. And, um, I said, how many are there? He said, 12. And I said, yeah, they're my pigs. I said, do they look like mine? Because mangoes have a very distinct, you know, appearance. Even right. the mango leads across us. He said, yeah, they do. And I went out there uh, 
he managed to catch him. I was just coming prepared to, to call him then and there immediately. Um, not that I wanted to, don't get me wrong, but having pigs running across busy roads, it's not worth the liability of someone else getting hurt. Um, you know, it's one thing to have a little property damage. It's another thing for somebody to be driving, even if they're driving too fast on a country road and to hit a pig and somebody get hurt. I just, I just didn't want to risk it, but he had managed to get him I, I, to catch him up. I didn't have to, to shoot him then. And I put him in a pen, solid pen that they couldn't escape from. And that's when I started calling him. This was back in uh, December of last year, December of 2022. And that's when we started having barbecues every week or two. Um, I mean, I took barbecue to neighbors, to friends, to people in need. We had church barbecues. Um, but I, and I'd never had the pigs actually leave the farm. And then I had one sow that, uh, kept going back to a neighbor's. I mean, they're a cousin of ours. Their land is adjacent to ours, but they, she ate their, their feed. And I just, you know, it, when it's all said and done, you know, we have a responsibility as livestock owners, in my mind anyway, to make sure that that we keep the livestock safe, but also that we don't let our cows, that we don't let our pigs out. Yes, occasionally there's going to be a gate that blows open or somebody will come on the property and not close a gate well or something, you know, a fence will be down. Those accidents happen sometimes, but when you have a pig that'll take a shot with an electric fence at 10,000 volts just because it wants to get out. That's a whole, whole nother story. I think the best example I can have when I was a kid, I never got into a whole, whole lot of like evil trouble, but I was just a mischievous little devil. And I would take those, you know, those little firecrackers, those snap pops you yeah. throw on the ground and they yeah. make a little pop. Yeah. I would tape them to the bottom of the my mother's toilet seat to that little tab and she'd sit down and it'd get popped and i would get a whooping well i'd keep doing it i mean i may wait a month or a week or three months or whatever but i'd do it knowing that i was going to get a whooping and for those mangalitsas um they just did not stay contained in that electric fence it could have uh eight to ten thousand volts i've had people tell me that they needed to have eleven or thirteen thousand volts uh, whatever i don't i don't know I, i've seen greg judy one of his videos uh they had some mangalitsas that stayed in with a single strand of hot wire i've got pigs that will stay in with a single strand of hot wire but even with three strands of high tensile electric fencing at nine to ten thousand volts those mangalitsas would dart under it yeah. knowing that they'd get Get hit. that they get shot and i'd retrain them and they'd still get out wow. and at that point the the temperament at least of the manga genetics that i had um was not it, it wasn't worth it now i've heard of people say that their mangas were great they plopped down for belly rubs and and that kind of thing which is fine but in terms of the genetics two different genetic lines that i had on our farm uh, I did not, I did not have that experience. And I finally got to the point, uh, and I've got YouTube videos, a couple YouTube videos on it, but I, I got to the point where it's just not, it's not worth the stress. It's not worth the anxiety. Uh, and so I have culled all of our mangalitsa sows with the exception of that one. She's bred to our Berkshire boar. Um, and if she, if her piglets uh, do not, stay in the electric fence like our other pigs do, then I'll call her after this next farrowing as well. Yeah. Um, I love the manga meat. And for a, you know, for somebody that's on a, a homestead level, little farmstead level, they just want a couple pigs to have around that they can feed, you know, they can, they can do really well as feeder pigs. If you give them, you know, some of the time and, and, good fencing uh and good genetics but i no i it it just the the stuff hit the fan with the pigs jumping out jumping through the electric fence leaving the farm right. and going a mile down the road it's not worth the yeah 
public safety for that matter, okay. not to mention the wild pigs. And I did know, now let me also say, I did also make sure that we weren't, that those pigs, you know, didn't turn feral or anything else. But a lot of people think mangalitsa are feral pigs. Right, right. Uh, when, if they don't know of mangalitsa, because they do have some similar traits. Sure. Um, but, yeah, yeah I, I've had people stop by the farm. Where'd you shoot that one? And I'm like, oh, right there on the road. Oh, we got pigs. And they'd go to cussing and that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd wait a, little, a minute or two before I actually told them that they were tame mangalitsa pigs rather than feral hogs but right, right. anyway yeah and, and that i mean that's that's just another point that comes back to cost as you said rob the the temperament of the animal to leave affects the temperament of the farmer <laughs> which has a lot of those intangibles that uh, that rub off on family and friends and church and all that type of stuff oh yeah if you're walking around ticked off all the time because your pigs won't stay home then that 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 makes it difficult for everybody but then just the investment in more infrastructure uh, i mean that's the whole reason i started with pigs was i didn't have a lot of money and i wanted to have an animal and it's like well what's the cheapest fencing or what, yeah, what animal requires the cheapest fencing? And it was like, okay, pigs. And, um, and, and the breeds that we've had, we've been blessed with, you know, single strand in the woods keeps everybody home. And, and, uh, yeah, if you have to come back and you, you've got to build goat fencing for your pigs, um, and still want to have them pastured, then that's a big change. And that affects, um, profitability that affects infrastructure. And of course, maintenance that goes along with that, especially if you've got woods, um, so that definitely adds to it, and, and that's something I think we all need to take into consideration when we're looking at these type of things. Yeah, and probably if I were to try to raise mangas, if I had the market and all that, I'd put up a woven wire fence with a, a single strand of electric to keep the pigs from going underneath it, um, and then I would I would uh, rotate the pigs through you know a handful of different paddocks, and that I would. I would graze with specific cover crops that performed well, you know, my time of the year, um, in my area. Um, but that's, that would work well for, uh, five or 10, maybe 20 pigs, right. depending on their sizes and all. Um, but the cost would be so high, you know, if I had to build that, that it's, it's much easier for me just to have genetics uh, and temperaments of pigs that stay in with um, single. I mean, I use double strand just because I'm a little gun shy, but my, my pigs will stay in with a single strand most of the time. Um, my larger pigs do. But the uh, that's what I would do if I were going to try to do mangalitsas or something with that kind of temperament. Um, but, you know, again, that's, uh, that's not everybody's experience with mangalitsas, but uh, that's that's where the everything with the mangoes hit the fan is when those pigs left the farm and uh, don't want wild pigs and don't want the liability of someone getting hurt. Yeah, yeah, and that, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that for sure because that can cause a lot of issues. Well, and I so I, I think you know maybe, and I want to be cognizant of your time. We've we've gone a little long here, but I've enjoyed the conversation. But I, I think you know the, kind of the key takeaway there, like you said, is that is that what you know, what is the end game? What are you trying to do if you're if you're trying to start a commercial operation, even if it's a small commercial operation where you're going to provide a product to customers for profit, then that's where you need to take a long, hard look at these specialty breeds. If you're looking at it like a homestead level and you just want something unique or you want something that you can manage and you like the fat and you and you like uh, the benefits of the things that go along with a the manga, then, then that's a different, that's a different uh, approach to that. But um, you got to look at scalability. And like you said, with the ideal pasture setup with that woven wire and everything and rotating with cover crops, that would be awesome to see. Um, but that would be a lot of management time. And then, like you said, scaling up would just get so cost prohibitive that um, it would be a neat science experiment, but it would cease to be profitable at that point. So then that's where you have to make the farm a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. Good for well, there's, there's, yeah, I think there's a lot more option for feeding pigs on cover crops. Um, I'm, that's one of my primary goals 
And honestly, the the Berkshires I've had that I have now, uh, well, I've got Berkshire, Hampshire, and Duroc, but mostly Berkshire Genetics. And you know they they forage as well, maybe even better than the the mangas. Um, and once I get my system in place a little bit better, um, I, I, next summer I think I'll have much better experience. Um, reduce dramatically reducing our feed costs. Um, and and one thing about two things about the manga that I, benefits that I did not mention: the back fat is a higher quality back fat than you get with the other meat pigs that I've had. Um, texture and all wise, it seems much more like it's a um, more similar to to leaf fat than it is back fat. Um, that that may just be because in those times we were finishing pigs on acorns and that kind of thing. Um, but the quality of the back fat is much better in mangas than it has been in the large, in the, the meat pigs that I've had deer ox, hamsters, et cetera. The other thing is I don't think that mangalitsas require uh, a lot of the very specific nutrition that, that your standard meat pigs do. Mm. This is a suspicion of mine. I've never seen any any studies or publications on it or anything else. But I think because they grow so much more slowly, they don't need like the the higher levels of the amino acid profiles like lysine. Um, most people think of it just as as you know protein, but it's the amino acid profile and the protein that that matters. You know more than just the sheer crude protein. But I think they don't need the um, – because they grow so much slower, they don't need the specialized nutrition. Um, I, that's a suspicion based on my feeding efforts last fall. Um, but I, I wouldn't – you know, I wouldn't bet the farm on that. Mm-hmm. But um, I have seen some anecdotal evidence to support that. But yeah. we'll, we'll – I don't. I say we'll see. I won't see because I don't plan on keeping the mangas around any longer. But um, anyway, well, that's yeah, that's yeah. a possibility, though. Yeah, and and I think it's I think it's fair, and I like that you close with that. That there are benefits of this breed. I mean, there's a reason why this breed is still around, and people are are keeping them and developing it and and trying to sustain the that breed line. Uh, so there are benefits. It's just. Um, yeah, the, the kind of the key takeaway from this discussion is is really do your homework based on what you're trying to do and just take these experiences into consideration that Rob's sharing with us. So you can say, well, all right, um, yeah, I'm, I'm similar to Rob. I don't know my market as well. All, the, all those things we need to take into consideration before pulling the trigger on something like this or at least start very, very small and, and learn uh, as you go if, if you feel you really want to explore this specific breed when it comes to commercial sales. Yeah. By far, I would start off with feeder pigs in this breed just to get an idea of one, their temperament, but more importantly, so that people will know, hey, I I may be able to bring this to a market weight in 15 or 16 months, or it may take 24 months or 20 months, whatever. But at least you know how your management, how the genetics of the lines that you have, you know, would fit. And then I'd worry about breeding stock but i would not start off with breeding stock until you know the the breed quite well yeah. that's again that's where i messed up yeah very good <laughs> very good well rob man i sure appreciate you coming on and sharing this it's you know it's not easy to to share with the um with the public uh you know a mistake uh that you feel that but but it was a good learning experience obviously it wasn't a a total loss you you got to uh experience something new you got to obviously still eat some good quality pork and all that type of stuff but i really appreciate you coming on and and sharing a little bit more intimate information about your farm um that being said how do if you would reiterate for the people that uh that uh, are, are curious how do people find out more about you You've obviously mentioned your youtube channel and i know you've got the website so uh, give a shout out for all your social media and your uh, web web links there yeah i don't do social media much other than youtube if you call that social media that's kind of a weird mix there but uh youtube daddle family farms or at daddle family farms on youtube uh, is where people can keep up with a farm for the most part our website is daddlefamilyfarms.com but right now we're out of most products 
and I don't keep most of our our farm information there. That's mostly just a kind of a retail sales uh, part of the the farm. But um, and they, of course they can always email me Rob at dowdlefamilyfarms.com. Um, but yeah, those are the best ways of getting in touch with me through YouTube or through our email or website. Awesome, awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on. It's good talking with you again. Good talking with you, Troy. Thanks for having me. And again, thanks for what you're doing to uh, expand um, the awareness and the impact of pastured pork. Well, I really appreciate Rob coming on and, and sharing that story with us. I know it's not super easy to come on in front of everybody, in front of your peers, and, and talk about things that didn't work out. But that's that's part of it. I hope we all are willing to be that transparent and and share. That's the whole point of the podcast is to share the ups and the downs and hopefully help other people make the right adjustments and not go through the same mistakes we've made and and then obviously just kind of revel in the successes we've had as well. So uh, be sure to check out Rob's information there if you want to know more about what's got going on on the farm and probably have him back on. We've got a couple other topics he and I have been discussing and um, he and I are kindred spirits, so we, we see eye to eye on a lot of things. So I, I think it will be good to have him back on and, and hit some of these other topics. All right. Well, that's number two in the books. Let's see if we can get to number three. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.